Chapter Five of the Case of Jenny Brace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Case of Jenny Brace by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter Five. Mr. Reynolds did not come home to dinner after all. The water had got into the basement at the store. He telephoned one of the floodgates in a sewer having leaked, and they were moving some of the departments to an upper floor. I had expected to have him in the house that evening, and now was left alone again. But, as it happened, I was not alone. Mr. Graves, one of the city detectives, came at half-past six and went carefully over the Ladley's room. I showed him the towel and the slipper and the broken knife, and where we had found the knife-blade. He was very non-committal, and left in a half-hour, taking the articles with him in a newspaper. At seven the doorbell rang. I went down as far as I could on the staircase, and I saw a boat outside the door, with the boatman and a woman in it. I called to them to bring the boat back along the hall, and I had a queer feeling that it might be Mrs. Ladley, and that I'd been making a fool of myself all day for nothing. But it was not Mrs. Ladley. "'Is this number forty-two? asked the woman as the boat came back. "'Yes. Does Mr. Ladley live here?' "'Yes, but he is not here now. "'Are you Mrs. Pittock?' "'Pittman, yes.' The boat bumped against the stairs, and the woman got out. She was as tall as Mrs. Ladley, and when I saw her in the light from the upper hall, I knew her instantly. It was Temple Hope, the leading woman from the Liberty Theatre. "'I would like to talk to you, Mrs. Pittman,' she said. "'Where can we go?' I led the way back to my room, and when she had followed me in, she turned and shut the door. "'Now, then,' she said without any preliminary, "'where is Jenny Bryce?' "'I don't know, Miss Hope,' I answered. We looked at each other for a minute, and each of us saw what the other suspected. "'He has killed her!' she exclaimed. She was afraid he would do it, and he has. Killed her and thrown her into the river, I said. That's what I think, and he'll go free at that. It seems there isn't any murder when there isn't any corpse. Nonsense. If he has done that, the river will give her up, eventually. The river doesn't always give them up, I retorted. Not in flood time, anyhow. Or when they are found it is months later and you can't prove anything. She had only a little time, being due at the theatre soon, but she sat down and told me the story she told afterward on the stand. She had known Jenny Bryce for years, they having been together in the chorus as long before as Nagy. She was married then to a fellow on the vaudeville circuit, Miss Hope said. He left her about that time, and she took up with Ladley. I don't think they were ever married. "'What?' I said, jumping to my feet. "'And they came to a respectable house like this? "'There's never been a breath of scandal about this house, Miss Hope, "'and if this comes out, I'm ruined.' "'Well, perhaps they were married,' she said. "'Anyhow, they were always quarreling, "'and when he wasn't playing, it was worse. "'She used to come to my hotel and cry her eyes out.' "'I knew you were friends,' I said. "'Almost the last thing she said to me, 
was about the black and white dress of hers you were to borrow for the piece this week. Black and white dress? I? Borrow one of Jenny Bryce's dresses? exclaimed Miss Hope. I should think not. I have plenty of my own. That puzzled me, for she had said it, that was sure. And then I remembered that I had not seen the dress in the room that day, and I went in to look for it. It was gone. I came back and told Miss Hope. A black and white dress? Did it have a red color? she asked. Yes. Then I remember it. She wore a small black hat with a red quill with that dress. You might look for the hat. She followed me back to the room and stood in the doorway while I searched. The hat was gone, too. Perhaps, after all, he's telling the truth, she said thoughtfully. Her fur coat isn't in the closet, is it? It was gone. It is strange that, all day, I had never thought of looking over her clothes and seeing what was missing. I hadn't known all she had, of course, but I had seen her all winter in her fur coat and admired it. It was a striped fur, brown and gray, and very unusual. But with the coat missing and a dress and a hat gone, it began to look as if I had been making a fool of myself and stirring up a tempest in a teacup. Miss Hope was as puzzled as I was. Anyhow, if he didn't kill her, she said, it isn't because he did not want to. Only last week she had hysterics in my dressing room and said he had threatened to poison her. It was all Mr. Bronson, the business manager, and I could do to quiet her. She looked at her watch and exclaimed that she was late and would have to hurry. I saw her down to her boat. The river had been falling rapidly for the last hour or two, and I heard the boat scrape as it went over the door sill. I did not know whether to be glad that the water was going down, and I could live like a Christian again, or to be sorry for fear what we might find in the mud that was always left. Peter was lying where I had put him, on a folded blanket laid in a clothes basket. I went back to him and sat down beside the basket. Peter, I said. Poor old Peter. Who did this to you? Who hurt you? He looked at me and whined, as if he wanted to tell me, if only he could. Was it Mr. Ladley? I asked, and the poor thing cowered close to his bed and shivered. I wondered if it had been he, and, if it had, why he had come back. Perhaps he had remembered the towel. Perhaps he would come again and spend the night there. I was like Peter. I cowered and shivered at the very thought. At nine o'clock I heard a boat at the door. It had stuck there, and its occupant was scolding furiously at the boatman. Soon after I heard splashing, and I knew that whoever it was was wading back to the stairs through the foot and a half or so of water still in the hall. I ran back to my room and locked myself in, and then stood armed with the stove-lid lifter, in case it should be Ladley and he should break the door in. The steps came up the stairs, and Peter barked furiously. It seemed to me that this was to be my end, killed like a rat in a trap, and thrown out the window, to float like my kitchen chair into Molly McGuire's kitchen, or to be found lying in the ooze of the yard after the river had gone down. The steps hesitated at the top of the stairs, and turned back along the hall. 
Peter redoubled his noise. He never barked for Mr. Reynolds or the Ladleys. I stood still, hardly able to breathe. The door was thin, and the lock loose. One good blow, and— The doorknob turned, and I screamed. I recall that the light turned black, and that is all I do remember. Until I came to, a half hour later, and saw Mr. Holcomb stooping over me. The door, with the lock broken, was standing open. I tried to move, and then I saw that my feet were propped on the edge of Peter's basket. "'Better leave them up,' Mr. Holcomb said. "'It sends the blood back to the head. Half the damn fool people in the world stick a pillow under a fainting woman's shoulders. How are you now?' "'All right,' I said feebly. "'I thought you were Mr. Ladley.' He helped me up, and I sat in a chair and tried to keep my lips from shaking. And then I saw that Mr. Holcomb had brought a suitcase with him, and had set it inside the door. "'Ladley is safe until he gets bail anyhow,' he said. They picked him up as he was boarding a Pennsylvania train bound east. "'For murder?' I asked. "'As a suspicious character,' he replied grimly. "'That does as well as anything for a time.' He sat down opposite me and looked at me intently. "'Mrs. Pittman,' he said, "'did you ever hear of the story of the horse "'that wandered out of a village and could not be found?' "'I shook my head. "'Well, the best wit of the village failed to locate the horse, "'but one day the village idiot walked into town, "'leading the missing animal by the bridle. "'When they asked him how he had done it, he said, "'Well, I just thought what I'd do if I was a horse, "'and then I went and did it.' "'I see,' I said, humoring him. "'You don't see. "'Now, what are we trying to do?' "'We're trying to find a body. "'Do you intend to become a corpse?' "'He leaned over and tapped on the table between us. "'We are trying to prove a crime. "'I intend for the time to be the criminal.' He looked so curious, bent forward and glaring at me from under his bushy eyebrows, with his shoes on his knee, for he had taken them off to wade to the stairs, and his trousers rolled to his knees, that I wondered if he was entirely sane. But Mr. Holcomb, eccentric as he might be, was sane enough. Not really a criminal. As really as lies in me. Listen, Mrs. Pittman. I want to put myself in Ladley's place for a day or two. Live as he lived, do what he did, even think as he thought, if I can. I am going to sleep in his room tonight, with your permission. I could not see any reason for objecting, although I thought it silly and useless. I led the way to the front room, Mr. Holcomb following with his shoes and suitcase. I lighted the lamp, and he stood looking around him. "'I see you have been here since we left this afternoon,' he said. "'Twice,' I replied. First with Mr. Graves, and later—the words died in my tongue. Someone had been in the room since my last visit there. "'He has been here!' I gasped. "'I left the room in tolerable order. Look at it. "'When were you here last?' "'At seven-thirty or thereabouts.' "'Where were you between seven-thirty and eight-thirty? "'In the kitchen with Peter. "'I told him then about the dog. 
and about finding him shut in the room. The washstand was pulled out. The sheets of Mr. Ladley's manuscript, usually an orderly pile, were half on the floor. The bed coverings had been jerked off and flung over the back of a chair. Peter, imprisoned, might have moved the washstand and upset the manuscript. Peter had never put the bed clothing over the chair or broken his own leg. Hmm, he said, and getting out his notebook, he made an exact memorandum of what I had told him, and of the condition of the room. That done, he turned to me. Mrs. Pittman, he said, I'll thank you to call me Mr. Ladley for the next day or so. I am an actor out of employment, forty-one years of age, short, stout, and bald, married to a woman I would like to be quit of, and I am writing myself a play in which the Sherberts intend to star me, or in which I intend the Sherberts to star me. Very well, Mr. Ladley, I said, trying to enter into the spirit of the thing, and, God knows, seeing no humor in it. Then you'll like your soda from the ice-box? Soda? For what? For your whiskey and soda, before you go to bed, sir. Oh, certainly, yes. Bring the soda. And just a moment, Mrs. Pittman. Mr. Holcomb is a total abstainer and has always been so. It is Ladley, not Holcomb, who takes his abominable stuff. I said I quite understood, but that Mr. Ladley could skip a night, if he so wished. But the little gentleman would not hear to it, and when I brought the soda, poured himself a double portion. He stood looking at it, with his face screwed up, as if the very odor revolted him. The chances are, he said, that Ladley, that I, having a nasty piece of work to do during the night, would, will take a larger drink than usual. He raised the glass only to put it down. Don't forget, he said, to put a large knife where you left the one last night. I'm sorry the water has gone down, but I shall imagine it's still at seven step. Good night, Mrs. Pittman. Good night, Mr. Ladley, I said, smiling. And remember, you are three weeks in arrears with your board. His eyes twinkled through his spectacles. I shall imagine it paid, he said. I went out, and I heard him close the door behind him. Then, through the door, I heard a great sputtering and coughing, and I knew he had got the whiskey down somehow. I put the knife out, as he had asked me to, and went to bed. I was ready to drop. Not even the knowledge that an imaginary Mr. Ladley was about to commit an imaginary crime in the house that night could keep me awake. Mr. Reynolds came in at eleven o'clock. I was roused when he banged his door. That was all I knew until morning. The sun on my face wakened me. Peter, in his basket, lifted his head as I moved, and thumped his tail against his pillow in greeting. I put on a wrapper and called Mr. Reynolds by knocking at his door. Then I went on to the front room. The door was closed, and someone beyond was groaning. My heart stood still, and then raced on. I opened the door and looked in. Mr. Holcomb was on the bed, fully dressed. He had a wet towel, tied around his head, and his face looked swollen and puffy. He opened one eye and looked at me. What a night, he groaned. What happened? What did you find? He groaned again. 
find, he said, nothing, except that there was something wrong with that whiskey. It poisoned me. I haven't been out of the house. So for that day, at least, Mr. Ladley became Mr. Holcomb again, and as such accepted ice in quantities, a mustard plaster over his stomach, and considerable nursing. By evening he was better, but although he clearly intended to stay on, he said nothing about changing his identity again, and I was glad enough. The very name of Ladley was horrible to me. The river went down almost entirely that day, although there was still considerable water in the cellars. It takes time to get rid of that. The lower floor showed nothing suspicious. The papers were ruined, of course. The doors warped and sprung, and the floors coated with mud and debris. Terry came in the afternoon, and together we hung the dining-room rug out to dry in the sun. As I was coming in, I looked over the Maguire yard. Molly Maguire was there, and all her children around her, gaping. Molly was hanging out to dry a sodden fur coat that had once been striped brown and gray. I went over after breakfast and claimed the coat as belonging to Mrs. Ladley, but she refused to give it up. There is a sort of unwritten law concerning the salvage of flood articles, and I had to leave the coat, as I had my kitchen chair. But it was Mrs. Ladley's, beyond a doubt. I shuddered when I thought how it had probably got into the water. And yet it was curious, too, for if she had had it on, how did it get loose to go floating around Molly McGuire's yard? And if she had not worn it, how did it get in the water? End of chapter 5